This is the third of my lectures concerning the politics of the courtroom, and I'm delighted to be back in Barnard's Inn Hall after a um, short sojourn elsewhere. In my first two lectures, I considered the political lawyer and the political jury. I now turn my attention to the politics of judging, as I describe it in this lecture title. The photograph accompanying this lecture on Gresham College's website is by now a very familiar one. I have it here more fully on the screen. We see photographs, you might say mugshots, of the judges who in late 2016 decided in favour of Gina Miller in her challenge to the government's assertion that following the Brexit referendum, it could serve notice to withdraw from the European Union without any act of parliament. The accompanying headline is even more familiar. Enemies of the people thundered the Daily Mail. It's a headline which has launched, I suspect, a thousand dinner party conversations and more recently, Zoom discussions. It's even lent its name to an excellent book uh, by the distinguished legal commentator Joshua Rosenberg, published last year on the impact of judges on society. Of course, the choice of the photographs in that front page was a very careful one. The judges look remote and smug in their wigs and their court dress. The message was, you might think, clear. These men are not fighting your corner. They are members of a liberal elite who are seeking to promote their narrow, metropolitan view of the world. Indeed, one of those men on the far left, um, Sir Terence Etherton, then the master of the rolls, was described by the male accurately, but perhaps with dubious relevance in the circumstances, as, I quote, an openly gay ex-Olympic fencer, which led to J.K. Rowling's famous tweet a few days later. If the worst that they can say about you is you're an openly gay ex-Olympic fencer top judge, you've basically won life. The decision of those three judges was upheld, as we all remember, by a substantial majority in the Supreme Court a few months later in early 2017. And of course, as we all also remember, uh, Ms. Miller then returned to the court in the equally famous case she brought concerning the prorogation of Parliament in 2019. In that case, all 11 justices of the Supreme Court sitting on the appeal agreed with Ms. Miller that the decision to prorogue Parliament, famously taken by the Prime Minister in August of that year, was unlawful. Now, let me say what this lecture is not about. I'm not going to engage in a discussion of the legal merits or demerits of those court decisions. They've all been endlessly debated by people far better qualified than myself to offer an informed opinion. Instead, I'm interested in the public response to what those judges decided in those cases and in wider questions about what I describe as the politics of judging. There was, to me at least, and I think to many other people, a really surprising amount of opprobrium directed against those judges in those two Miller cases for the decisions they'd reached, not just by journalists in certain parts of the press, certainly not confined to the Daily Mail, but also from politicians, members of, of, of government, as well as from a, a number of very eminent academic scholars. Now, criticism of the judiciary is, of course, not purely a modern phenomenon. Traditionally, however, the attacks have come generally from the left, directed against a rather different form of elite to the current perception of our judiciary. If we go back into the past, of course, we find that the English judiciary was comprised almost uniformly of white public school educated men of a conservative disposition, united by their belief in the salutary value of severe punishment and implacable opposition to the abolition of the death penalty. Now, Criticism of those kind of judges at that time could require real courage. When the most notorious of them of all, the Lord Chief Justice Lord Goddard, 
died in the early 1970s, the journalist Bernard Levin wrote a famous excoriating article in the Times expressing his contempt for the principle that one should not speak ill of the recently dead and stating boldly his view that Lord Goddard had been a bigot and a bully. As Levin had, him, had himself in the very article uh, predicted, he was then met with an onslaught of outrage as the establishment closed ranks behind uh, the recently deceased Lord Goddard. But the only tangible repercussion Levin suffered was being blackballed from the famous gentleman's club, the Garrick, then as now uh, a judicial haven. In apartheid South Africa at roughly the same time, however, criticising judges could lead to rather more serious consequences. Uh, uh, an academic practising in South Africa at that time called Baron van Nijkerk was held to be in contempt of court for publicly condemning judges for their failure to speak out against the introduction of particularly abhorrent legislation that permitted incommunicado detention without trial. Merely criticising the judges led to him to being found in contempt of court. Now, a few years later, uh, uh, Professor John Griffith wrote his famous book, The Politics of the Judiciary. And Griffith's argument was, in a nutshell, the, judici the, the judiciary, drawn, as he claimed, from a narrow and privileged stratum of society, was making political decisions which reflected its predominantly conservative worldview and seeking to stymie the reforming work of the Labour governments of the 1960s and 1970s. Griffith's thesis can be summed up in the following words drawn from his book, and I quote, Behind these decisions, various legal decisions by the courts, lies a unifying attitude of mind, a political position which is primarily concerned to protect and conserve certain values and institutions. This does not mean that the judiciary inevitably and invariably supports what governments do, or even what conservative governments do, though this is their natural inclination. And that was written, those words were written in 1977. Forty years on, the pendulum has swung very decisively. The talk now in the corridors of power is of illegitimate activism by a liberal judicial cabal intent on stymieing the so-called will of the people, reigning in executive freedom of action and second-guessing governmental decisions. The, the intellectual engine room of this critique is the think tank policy exchange, which in 2015 created something called the Judicial Power Project, the JPP, headed by very eminent academics. Now, the JPP states its purpose on its website as follows. There we are. I should have got, showed you Lord Goddard. Um, as follows. Judicial overreach increasingly threatens the rule of law and effective democratic government. The project aims to address this problem, so they say, restoring balance to the Westminster Constitution by articulating the good sense of separating judicial and political authority. In other words, the project aims to understand and correct the undue rise in judicial power by restating for modern times and in relation to modern problems the nature and limits of the ju judicial power within our tradition and the related scope of sound legislative and executive authority. That's their, their purpose. Um, and a, a very distinguished Oxford academic called Professor John Finnis, Queen's Counsel, in two papers available on the JPP's website, excoriated the unanimous decision of the 11 Supreme Court judges in the Miller No. 2 case, i.e. the prorogation judgment, as a constitutional heresy. His tone, it's fair to say, uh, closely argument though it may be, is not one of respectful disagreement. And Lord Folkes, Queen's Counsel, himself previously a justice minister in the coalition government under David Cameron, wrote a preface to Finnis's second paper in which he, ha he added his own view that the judgment was, this is the judgment of Miller number two, I quotes, 
an assertion of judicial power that cannot be justified by constitutional law or principle. And Folks went even further than that. He wrote that Professor Finnis had shown, and I quote, just how badly the Supreme Court mishandled the law of our Constitution, which it was duty-bound to apply, and thus the damage it has done to the integrity of the UK's political constitution. So very harsh words indeed about those 11 Supreme Court judges who decided the prorogation case in Miller number 2. Um, they're also, you might say, all the stronger when one considers that the philosopher king, if I can call him that, of this school of thought, Lord Sumption himself, whose wreath lectures in 2019 were a sustained critique of judicial overreach, has himself dismissed criticism of Miller No. 2 and Sumption's published view on the prorogation cases that's entirely doctrinally sound. The critique wasn't confined simply to academics and journalists. Government ministers also weighed in after the prorogation decision. Kwasi Kwarteng MP claimed that, and I quote, many judges are saying, many people are saying that judges are biased. The judges are getting involved in politics. Jacob Rees-Mogg denounced in a very famous quotation, a constitutional coup. Former Attorney General Geoffrey Cox, Queen's Counsel, himself said that he thought there was, and I quote, a case for looking at how Supreme Court judges are appointed. And that's a question I'm going to come back to in my fourth lecture. Now, a few weeks after the, after the decision of the Supreme Court in the prorogation decision in Miller Number 2, the Conservative Party manifesto was published in respect of the December 2019 election. And it stated that a Conservative government would create a Commission on the Constitution, Rights and Democracy, as it was described, which would consider, I quote, the relationship between the government, parliament and the courts and the functioning of the royal prerogative. And of course, it was the royal prerogative which was an issue in Miller number two. Moreover, said the manifesto, it would ensure that judicial review which I'll come on to in a little while, was, quotes, not abused to conduct politics by another means or to create needless delays. Judicial review, as many of you listening uh, today will know, uh, is the legal process, I'm taking this very summarily, whereby the decisions of public bodies are subject to court review in respect of their legality. And in both Gina Miller's cases she had successfully applied to the courts for judicial review of an executive decision. The election then, of course, happened uh, at the end of 2019, and in its immediate aftermath, many speculated what the words in the manifesto really meant. The promise that the commission that was referred to would come up with proposals to, quotes, restore trust in our institutions seemed to suggest that the Conservative Party, at least, believed that trust in the judiciary had been lost or had been dented. Lord Folkes himself, who I've also previously referred to, suggested that the Commission would create an opportunity to reconsider the very decision in Millard Number 2. And then, a few months later, in July of last year, the government announced the formation of a independent review of administrative law, chaired by none other than Lord Folkes. Its remit was, I quote, to consider whether the right balance is being struck between the rights of citizens to challenge executive decisions and the need for effective and efficient government. Now, almost simultaneously with the announcement by the government of this review, the, Jud the Judicial Power Project issued two further papers which seems to advocate the abolition of the United Kingdom's Supreme Court. It was argued that the very title, Supreme Court, and its physical separation from Parliament might incite 
hubristic thoughts amongst the, ju the justices, and that by contrast, the austere facilities of the appellate committee of the House of Lords, which is the previous highest court, apex court of the United Kingdom, um, uh, uh, may have encouraged, quotes, a degree of humility amongst the justices. Instead, the JPP proposed a new upper court of appeal, which would be made up of a revolving cadre of court of appeal judges from all the jurisdictions making up the United Kingdom. Aye, there'd no longer be a set of judges, currently 12 in number, who sat in the Supreme Court, but rather a revolving set of perhaps 50 judges drawn from the lower court of appeal and each taking their turn to sit in this new upper court of appeal. Now, the thread running through all these papers issued by the JPP seems to me to be a desire to diminish the perceived self-importance of an overweening institution. The JPP itself said that, that it believed that the, and I quote, the point is how to encourage that court to exercise its jurisdiction responsibly. And one proposed way to do this was to amend the very act that created the Supreme Court, the Constitutional Reform Act 2005, by, I quote, specifying in terms that the Supreme Court's responsibility is to adjudicate disputes according to law, not to guard the Constitution. I should say at this point that I believe that the United Kingdom is perhaps one of only two countries in the entire world which does not permit its Supreme Court to review the constitutionality of legislation, of, of parliamentary legislation, against some basic constitution. Now, to some people, these sentiments from all the various bodies that I've talked about will cause concern. Others, it's fair to say, will welcome them. And there's a vigorous debate in which people on both sides have respectable opinions. But given the seeming influence of the views of the Judicial Power Project in government circles, uh, and I should say many former, eminent former government ministers have written prefaces to these papers and other papers which I haven't referred to, they deserve our real urgent attention, at least to detect in which way the wind may be blowing in the future. There seems to be little doubt that reform of the Supreme Court and retrenchment of the ambit of judicial review are ideas that are really gaining momentum in the decision, in the legislative and executive decision makers of this country. Now, the assumption implicit in the Conservative Manifesto and the terms of the independent review is that the judges have somehow overstepped proper boundaries and that their power needs to be reined in. Is that a justified criticism? I'll come back to that when considering the report produced by Lord Folkes and the members of his review, which was published less than two weeks ago. Uh, uh, um, there was quite a lot of press surrounding the publication of Lord Folkes's review. Um, but amidst all the din of these recent debates, I want to take a step back and put forward a number of propositions and questions about the politics of judging. Now, my first theme is this. Being a judge is, in itself, a political act. Now, in my first two lectures, I deployed the word political in a particular way. I tried to explain how parts of the legal system were political in the sense that they involved a societal choice as to how we, as a community, organised the way law was administered, the law being itself a fundamental part of how our society as a whole is administered. I now turn, having considered the jury and the legal profession, to the judges. And my first proposition is that the position of judges 
within the wider set of institutions which make up the way that we have chosen to order our society is itself a political one. What we have decided is that there will be a body of people chosen in a particular way who will decide disputes between private litigants or between the state and the citizen. And we've also decided that that body of people will be entirely independent of the parties to the litigation and will owe no duties to anybody or anything other than an abstract conception of justice, which is sometimes described as the rule of law. The rule of law being a set of principles and doctrines that make up uh, uh, the, the conception of justice, which we in England, uh, in the United Kingdom, have arrived at over many centuries of analysis and judicial lawmaking. The protection of that independence means that until they reach the statutory age of retirement, currently 70 years old, although proposals in an advanced stage to increase that to 75, high court judges and, and above can only be removed from office by a majority vote of both houses of parliament. So the judicial office is protected from usurpation other than in the most extreme circumstances. And I should say that uh, no judge in England and Wales has ever been removed from office by that process. I think the only time it's ever happened um, in the wider body of the United Kingdom and Ireland, when Ireland was part of the, uh, uh, the nation, was in 1832 when an Irish judge was um, uh, uh, debarred uh, for, for peculations. And this ideal of judicial independence is perhaps the central plank of our legal system. Perhaps we don't think about that very much. Perhaps we take it for granted. But we shouldn't. When you have a dispute with somebody, whether that person is your neighbour, is a company you've been doing business with, or some emanation of the state, you will obtain the benefit of a judge to decide that dispute who is beholden to nobody and who you can have absolute confidence will try your case simply by reference to the law and to certain principles of justice which accumulate in the concept of the rule of law. That is a guarantee which you may think is a matter of obviousness, but it is by no means universal in the world at the present moment. In the Soviet Union, the conviction rate in criminal trials was said to be 99.5%. The grim joke used to be told that it was difficult to explain the remaining 0.5% of acquittals. But, but don't think that is a statistic which is somehow confined to an increasingly far distant past. To this day, apparently, the average Russian judge renders a not guilty verdict once every seven years. And I should say that the jury system in Russia is very limited indeed. Judicial independence is in jeopardy even within the boundaries and borders of the European Union. So don't think this is some far distant problem. In Poland, after the Law and Justice Party came to power in 2015, it instituted a number of measures to curtail judicial power over its executive freedom of action. For instance, it refused to recognise judges appointed, certain judges appointed prior to its coming to power. It instituted the need for a supermajority within judges making up particular courts, i.e. not just two-to-one wins, an entrenched majority was required before a decision could be overturned, and an executive decision could be overturned. It created a system whereby judicial appointments were controlled by the state and then packed the courts with government appointees. 
And it created a system of sanctioning judges who in any way questioned the legitimacy of these appointees. Uh, uh, and let me just read out to you the, the, the conclusion reached by two acad American academic commentators uh, about uh, re recent judicial reforms in Poland. And I quote, At its core, the Law and Justice Party's rhetoric seeks to classify the judiciary as an impediment to democratic rule by the people, rather than a constitutionally mandated check on legislative and executive overreach. Of course, the end goal of the rhetoric is to justify the use of executive and legislative power unfettered by judicial review. Now, these steps, I would suggest, are matters of concern. And they're not happening in some far distant land. They're happening on our doorstep. The rule of law is a fragile thing. There's nothing God-given that says that this country is immune from moving in that same direction. And I would suggest that the undermining of the judiciary can be the first step towards its neutralization as a beneficent part of the constitutional arrangements of any country. I move to my second theme. The politics of deciding whether or not, whether or not to be or to remain a judge. Now, the ideal of an independent judiciary, as I say, or as I suggest, is a political one. But sometimes the question of actually whether to be a judge at all in a particular society will engage political questions. Events in Hong Kong over the last few months have been much in the news after the introduction of the new national security law and the suppression or curtailment of certain democratic representation. A question has arisen uh, uh, of the approach the judiciary should take to these events. Now, some of you will know that there is in Hong Kong what is known as the Hong Kong Court of Final Appeal, which is a form of Supreme Court, and which comprises a significant number of senior United Kingdom, Australian and Canadian judges who will typically sit for a few weeks per year as part of that court as so-called non-permanent members. Now, in a leader column in The Times uh, uh, published earlier this month, it was stated as follows. The judge's involvement in the justice system provides a welcome gloss of legitimacy, which is critical to Hong Kong's continued functioning as an international financial centre, particularly after the draconian national security law imposed by Beijing last year. There can be no more quiet agreements for the judges to extend their lucrative visiting contracts. With the illusion that they can deliver change from within, the new system is exploded. They should instead adopt a common position and resign together, i.e. The Times is here talking about the foreign judges from the United Kingdom and possibly Australia and Canada. They should insist with one voice that they will no longer lend their authority to a compromised system and demand that independent justice be restored to Hong Kong. That would be more than a gesture. That was the view of the Times of London. And echoing that, the shadow attorney general, Lord Falconer, likewise called on British judges to cease sitting on this court because, so he says, it serves, or, or they serve, only to legitimise a compromised political and legal system. That was Lord Falconer's view. On the other hand, Lord Sumption, who himself is a member of the Hong Kong Court of Final Appeal, took a different view. He wrote a, a, a response in the Times to the Times's leader, where he gave a robust defence of his own decision to remain a judge of that court. He drew a, a, a distinction between Hong Kong's courts, which, uh, uh, as he said, rightly said, are independent and themselves uphold the rule of law, and the legislation that those courts apply, which is, and so he pointed out, always has been, 
non-democratic. And he wrote as follows, calls for the withdrawal of British judges have nothing to do with judicial independence or the rule of law. In reality, they are demands that British judges should participate in a political boycott designed to put pressure on the Chinese government to change its position on democracy. It is not a proper function of judges, says Lord Sumption, to participate in political boycotts. They will serve the cause of justice far better by participating in the work of Hong Kong's courts. I should say that the dilemma facing these judges is by no means unique. Even Lord Sumption, I suspect, would acknowledge that there can come a time when, regardless of the integrity of the legal system administering the laws, the laws themselves can become too unpalatable to apply. And if one thinks back uh, uh, a few decades back to apartheid South Africa, which I've already mentioned, it's, it's well known that some of the finest advocates in South Africa during the apartheid years refused to become members of the judiciary in South Africa because they could not contemplate or tolerate the, the, the idea of applying what they would describe, and I think everyone would agree, were iniquitous apartheid, was iniquitous apartheid legislation. Let me move a little further forward. What happens when there is a revolution in a country and the, the judicial oath that you as a judge have, be give, be, have given somehow becomes invalid because your oath was given to the earlier power or the earlier constitution? Do you as a judge simply shift your allegiance to the new head of state or constitution? Or do you resign? Now, these, of course, are not merely moral or ethical questions to be debated in an academic sort of way. Judges, like everyone else, have to live, and they may have to feed their family, and resignation can have serious financial consequences for them. Now, I want to go back to a uh, a now largely forgotten episode uh, uh, which occurred in the 1960s in what was then southern Rhodesia. At the time, southern Rhodesia was a crown colony and the prime minister was a once famous or perhaps infamous man called Ian Smith who fell out with the British government um, and he and his ministers then decided to declare a so-called unilateral declaration of independence, UDI, as it was known. Now, under the colonial constitution of Rhodesia at the time, i.e. the constitution imposed by Britain, what they did was entirely illegal. They basically decided to declare themselves an independent, a fully independent state. Uh, moreover, the reasons uh, for the unilateral declaration of independence were particularly odious. Smith wished to ensure that the franchise remained white uh, uh, only, uh, so, so that he could preserve, effectively, white rule at the same time as the British government, the colonial government, uh, uh, as it was, wished to ensure the steady transition to universal suffrage where the majority of the population was black. An interesting example of the colonial power being, in one sense, on the righter side of, of, of history, perhaps a rare, a rare example of that. Um, a new constitution was purportedly brought into effect by Ian Smith, and the British government responded by declaring that that constitution was of no effect, and that all new laws made by the Southern Rhodesian leg legislature were of no effect either. Now, the existing judges of South Rhodesia, Southern Rhodesia, had all given an oath of allegiance to the Queen as the head of state. What should they do in the face of this revolution, albeit it's fair to say a, a peaceful or relatively peaceful revolution? Should they convert their oath from the Queen to the new illegal constitution and carry on as normal? Should they apply rules which were now, now necessarily, according to Britain, entirely unlawful? Now, a case was argued before the Southern Rhodesian, judge, Southern Rhodesian judges under, under which 
a man, the wife of a man called uh, Daniel Madsen Bamutu, had been detained by the state. She sought his release. And the case went all the way to the Privy Council in London, the Privy Council being at the time the, 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 the final apex court of southern Rhodesia under the old colonial regime. And the Privy Council held, after 10 days of intense legal argument, that the law under which Mr. Madsen Bamutu had been detained was invalid because it had been brought in by the legislature after uh, uh, the British government had declared the legislature and the executive illegal. And the Privy Council said the law under which he's been detained is illegal and therefore he should be released. The new de facto government of southern Rhodesia said it wouldn't recognise the Privy Council's judgment. And they disputed the right of the Privy Council to say anything at all about their nation. Now, in those acutely problematic constitutional circumstances, what should the judges sitting in Rhodesia, who'd given an oath of, uh, an oath of allegiance to the Queen, what should they do? In circumstances, of course, where the system in which they acted involved the Privy Council being the highest court of appeal, and yet the government was saying, we're not going to recognise the highest court of appeal. Two of the judges did a very brave thing indeed, and they took the view that their principles had to come before anything else, and they resigned. They could not carry on in a country that had rejected the very legal system which those judges had sworn to uphold. Now, the man who argued the case in the Privy Council in London was Sidney Kentridge, and he later wrote that the honour of the Southern Rhodesian judiciary had been maintained by those two judges. And one of them, a very great man indeed called Mr Justice Fieldsend, and there's a photograph of him, would later be appointed, some form of just deserts perhaps, as the Chief Justice of the New Zimbabwe that was formed ten years or so later. And in Fieldsend's obituary, Sidney Kentridge described him as, I quote, a man of conscience, the epitome of real judicial probity. Now, these examples, I think, demonstrate a fundamental truth about the business of judging. Judges are not simply passive creatures who adjudicate on the laws that are simply presented to them by the legislature, irrespective of the contents of those laws. There is a conception of justice which goes deeper than legislation, uh, that, uh, that appears to infringe basic notions of human liberty or the rule of law. One way judges have always tried to honour that conception is by interpreting, so far as possible, legislation in a way which is consistent with it. Sometimes, however, that is not possible. And sometimes, some judges, in some historical moments, have concluded that it is impossible to participate in a legal system which has certain laws. And the only way to respond is by resigning his or her office. Whether you call that an ethical or a political decision, I don't think matters. I come to my third topic. Are our judges over-politicised? Now, at the beginning of this lecture, I referred to the disquiet which had been voiced by certain academics and politicians about the supposed encroachment of the judiciary into matters which are, or are perceived to be, the preserve of the executive. My own view, for what it's worth, is that it is one thing to criticise particular judgments of the court, and quite another to suggest that the judiciary is engaged in some form of concerted project, project to expand the reach of judicial power. Let me just go to a, a, a very recent decision of the Supreme Court, which has received intense scrutiny, um, decided last year, concerning Mr Gerry Adams, the former leader of Sinn Féin. Adams had been interned 
in Northern Ireland in the early 1970s under a procedure which allowed the Secretary of State to detain a person without trial where, and I quote, it appears to the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland that a person is suspected of having been concerned in the commission or attempted commission of any act of terrorism. Now, Adams subsequently tried to escape from his detention and was convicted uh, uh, in the 1970s again of the crime of attempting to escape from lawful custody. Over 40 years later, he appealed against his conviction on the grounds that his original detention, the detention from which he'd sought to escape, had been itself unlawful because the relevant legislation required the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland personally to have considered Adams to be a terrorist rather than delegating that decision to some junior minister within the Northern Ireland Department. Now, it was common ground before the Supreme Court, to whom the case eventually came, that the minister, uh, uh, the Northern Ireland minister at the time, Willie Whitelaw, had not himself personally considered the matter and that he delegated the decision. Now, the Supreme Court unanimously decided that the statute in question that permitted detention without trial, or internment as it was known, required the Secretary of State on its true construction to personally come to the conclusion, to that conclusion about a person, a person's involvement in terrorism. And the consequence was that Adams had been wrongly detained in the first place and therefore his conviction for seeking to uh, escape from uh, uh, his detention was itself uh, uh, overturned. Now, the consequence of that decision potentially is that Adams has a claim for damages for wrongful imprisonment. And, and, and it's not, a, it's not a, a consequence that is unique to Mr. Adams. Many other people in Northern Ireland at the time were no doubt interned using the same processes, i.e. whereby the Secretary of State at the time delegated the decision to junior ministers to decide whether or not a particular person was suspected of involvement in terrorist activities so as to allow them to be detained. Now, that decision has received an awful lot of criticism since it, was, uh, uh, since it came out last year on the grounds that it simply misunderstands the practical reality of how government works, as well as misapplying, so it is said, a doctrine of law known as the Carltona Principle, named after a decision which sets out a, 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 a principle whereby where legislation uh, uh, requires a minister to do something or to come to a particular view, then that thing can be delegated to a junior minister. Now, for what it's worth... I think that criticism has a, a, an awful lot of uh, uh, strength. Uh, and personally, I have some sympathy for it. But I simply don't accept that the court's error, the Supreme Court's error, if indeed it was an error, and of course it constitutes the law of England, uh, of the United Kingdom, is a symptom of some wider judicial project. Putting it bluntly, as every, as every judge I'm sure would accept, Courts sometimes get things wrong. Now, eight months later, the Supreme Court heard the appeal in an equally or even more famous or infamous case, the Shamima Begum decision. And you'll remember that Ms. Begum, as a girl of 15, left England to join ISIS. Uh, and, and a few years later, while she was detained in a camp in Syria, the Home Secretary sought to deprive her of her British citizenship and then refused to allow Ms. Bacon to return to the United Kingdom from Syria so that she could effectively contest that deprivation of her citizenship. And the, the Secretary of State, um, the Home Secretary, uh, justified that refusal on the grounds that Ms. Bacon's return to this country would be contrary to the national interest on national security grounds. Now, the Supreme Court had to consider that question, amongst many other questions, um, in a decision very recently. And it refused to question or go behind the Home Secretary's reasons, deciding that, quotes, it was for the Home Secretary, 
who has been charged by Parliament with, with responsibility for making such assessments and who is democratically accountable to Parliament for the discharge of that responsibility. Now, a decision, I should say, which is welcomed by the Judicial Power Project. Two of the judges who decided the Begum case were also on the panel, which had decided a few months earlier, the Adams case. Uh, and they didn't have some Damascene conversion in that period to the path of judicial self-restraint. Now, speaking for myself, I've been at the bar for many years, and I've appeared in front of many judges, and I know quite a few judges, and my own personal view from what I've seen and what I've, and what I've spoken to people about is that almost to a man and a woman, the English judiciary are made up of intensely hard-working conscientious people who've usually given up very lucrative practices uh, uh, to take on a job which involves long hours and is mentally very, very wearing. Uh, and these people don't become judges in order to pursue some nefarious uh, uh, agenda or some politicised agenda. They generally decide to become judges out of a sense of public spiritedness. And after all, for a society to function efficiently and fairly, we have to have high-caliber lawyers who are willing to forego private practice to, to perform the tasks of the judiciary. And although these people no doubt have political views in the party sense, and like everyone else, they vote Conservative or they vote Labour or they vote Liberal Democrat, who knows, some of them might even vote for UKIP in the past, have voted for UKIP in the past. My own perception, both in terms of going into courtrooms myself and reading the law reports, is that when they enter the courtroom, they put aside those views. Now, the judiciary has come an awful long way since the days of hanging judges like Lord Goddard. And it's now drawn from a much wider pool of society, both in terms of gender, ethnicity, and social background. And nowadays, of course, also, appointments to the bench are in the hands, not of some cabal, but a specially appointed independent commission. And I, as many of you will also have done, have read and studied legal judgments from around the world. And my own view is that just the decisions of the English judiciary stand out for their lucidity and intellectual rigour and indeed intellectual honesty. And further, my view, is that the uh, uh, Supreme Court and before it, the House of Lords, and of course the Supreme Court uh, uh, replaced the House, of, the House of Lords as our apex court, is one of, if not the most, respected courts in the world. Foreign companies choose to have their disputes decided by English judges because they know they will get independent justice dispensed by high-quality legal minds. And it's against that background that one reads proposals to rename the Supreme Court the Upper Court of appeal and to convert its membership into some rolling membership of apparently, so some of the proposals go, 50 or so judges all taking their turn to sit in the Supreme Court. And my own view, for what it's worth, is that against the background of that preeminence in the world of the reputation of the English judiciary and English law. It does seem, those proposals do seem to me to constitute, if they were ever enacted, an act of national self-harm. Now, I mentioned earlier in my lecture that the government had instituted an independent review of administrative law, and Lord Folkes had headed that up. Now, his report was published a couple of weeks ago or so, his report and the report of his committee, and it was not the blistering critique that some people may have been expecting or hoping for. In fact, 
it's 180 or so pages long. But putting it into, distilling it into its quintessence, it was a measured document that found, so far as I could see, relatively little about the current system uh, and the judge's role within it requiring change. And at the risk of uh, praising overly Lord Folkes' conclusions, here are some of them. The panel considered that the... In- this is the, the panel of, of experts making up the, 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 the review... Consider that the independence of our judiciary and the high reputation which is held internationally should cause the government to think long and hard before seeking to curtail its powers. It's inevitable that the relationship between the judiciary, the executive and parliament will from time to time give rise to tensions. Recent decisions, and of course we know what they are, provide a clear illustration of this. On any view, a degree of conflict shows that the checks and balances in our constitution are working well. Our view is that the government and parliament can be confident that the courts will respect institutional boundaries in exercising their inherent powers to review the legality of government action. Politicians should, in turn, afford the judiciary the respect which it is undoubtedly due when it exercises these powers. Now, that conclusion or that set of conclusions may possibly have not been what the the government was expecting. And the Lord Chancellor himself responded to the, to, to the report in Parliament, I think a, a week or so ago, by saying that the review had, and I quote, found that there was on the part of the judges a growing willingness to accept an expansion of the remit of judicial review, which the Lord Chancellor described as, quotes, worrying. Now, there was a very interesting uh, uh, interview conducted by Joshua Rosenberg last week in Law and Action, when he was able to interview Lord Folkes himself about the review that he had chaired and also his response to the Lord Chancellor's words in Parliament. And Lord Folkes was surprisingly candid in saying that the Lord Chancellor's analysis of his review was not one that he particularly recognised. Um, It may well be that what one can read into this is that the government is set on reform, both of the Supreme Court and of the ambit of judicial review, even if the review it itself set up does not advocate reform except in relatively minor areas. I turn to my fourth and final heading, activist or asleep. Putting aside everything I've said so far, I think it's right to say that we can discern in judges over many decades, broadly speaking, two castes of mind, the interventionist and the non-interventionist. Strangely, they are not correlated to political leaning in the party sense. And these two castes of mind were most sharply delineated in one of the most famous cases decided in the 20th century. I I turn back to 1941, the depths of the Second World War, and a man called Robert Liversidge is arrested and detained by order of the Home Secretary under what became the notorious Regulation 18B of the Defence General Regulations, which had come into brought into force uh, rather hastily and for understandable, understandable reasons in late 1939. And this regulation allowed the Home Secretary to intern people if he had, quotes, reasonable cause to believe that they were of, quotes, hostile association. And it was under that regulation that Robert Liversidge was incarcerated. And he then brought legal proceedings to challenge the Home Secretary's decision. And those proceedings eventually reached the House of Lords. And four of the five judges decided that they could not go behind the the Home Secretary's assertion, bare assertion, that he had reasonable cause to order Robert Liversidge's incarceration. His assertion was good enough, so the majority held. One judge took a different view, and that was a a very great judge indeed, called Lord Atkin. And there's a photograph of him 
and he was at the time 75 years old when he sat in this case, and certainly no radical. But having heard the arguments presented before the House of Lords, he was moved to say this, some of the most famous judicial words ever spoken uh, in, by an English court. I view with apprehension the attitude of judges who on a mere question of construction, I, what, is the, what do the words of the regulation mean, when face-to-face -face with claims involving the liberty of the subject, show themselves more executive-minded than the executive. Words that caused an awful lot of consternation amongst Lord Atkins' fellow judges, I should say. Their function is to give words their natural meaning, not perhaps in wartime leaning towards liberty, but following the dictum of a particular judge of a 19th century case, where, he's, where that judge had said, in a case in which the liberty of the subject is concerned, we cannot go beyond the natural construction of the statute. In this country, amid the clash of arms, the laws are not silent. They may be changed, but they speak the same language in war as in peace. It has always been one of the pillars of freedom, one of the principles of liberty for which, on recent authority, we are now fighting, that the judges are no respecters of persons and stand between the subject and any attempted encroachments on his liberty by the executive, alert to see that any coercive action is justified in law. In this case, I have listened to arguments which might have been addressed acceptably to the Court of King's Bench in the time of Charles I. Again, words that caused a lot of consternation amongst his fellow judges. Now, for those who rail against judicial activism or judicial interventionism, I know of no better argument against those people than the fact that in the darkest days of apartheid South Africa, the decision of the majority in Liversidge was regularly cited by South African judges to, to justify judicial abstentionism in the face of executive abuse. Let me give you one notorious example. In a case called Rossau and Sachs, decided in 1964, the well-known anti-apartheid activist Albie Sachs had been detained in prison for interrogation and was deprived by the prison authorities of all reading and writing material. This was a detention that didn't last days. It lasted weeks and months and involved Sachs sitting isolated in a prison cell with literally nothing to do unless he was being hauled in for further interrogation. He, Sachs brought a, a claim before the South African courts seeking an order that he be permitted books and pen and paper. Now, in denying Sachs's claim, the South African court drew support from the majority decision in Liversidge. The regulations under which Sachs was being held, so they said, were designed to preserve public order and the safety of the state. And therefore, they should be interpreted in a way which allowed the police and the prison authorities to hold detainees for week after week without any form of distraction at all. And why should they be interpreted in that way? The reasons given by the court were chilling. I quote, to induce the detainee to speak. Now, Albie Sachs went on to become a member of the Constitutional Court of South Africa. And in fact, in the years that followed Atkins' decision through the 60s, 70s and 80s, the Atkin viewpoint, so to speak, has become the one that has generally prevailed across the common law world. And if it was a toss-up between the four judges who agreed with the Home Secretary and Lord Atkin, I know which judge I would rather have on the bench deciding my case. And there is, there is in existence a rather charming telegram uh, sent, by, sent to Atkin by his daughter just after he'd handed down judgment his dissenting judgment in Liversidge, and it reads as follows. Many congratulations on superb judgment. I'm prouder than ever to be your daughter. Not words one suspects uh, uh, a judge often receives from their children for a judgment they've just handed down in a, an English court. Now, a recently retired Court of Appeal judge called Stephen Sedley once wrote, and I pick up my fourth proposition here, 
that a judge is either an activist or he or she is asleep. And in fact, the English common law has been built, I would suggest, on judicial activism. Yet one of the criticisms recently levelled at the judges by our old friend, the Judicial Power Project, is that our tradition has taken the view that the body that ought to have authority to decide what the law should be is Parliament, in part because it represents the community, but in part also because it's best placed to change the law wisely and in a way that secures the rule of law. Now, I respectfully take issue with those words, and I respectfully suggest that it's very difficult to connect them to the actuality of law creation in Britain over many centuries. The reality is that much of the law that regulates our lives has been created by judges in a body of authority which dates back to the Middle Ages and which fills, and literally fills, law libraries. The common law, in all its complexity, subtlety, and flexibility, ranked surely as one of the great intellectual projects of this country and perhaps any other country. And a famous law lord, Lord Reed, said in a speech in the 1970s, which he pointedly titled, The Judge as Lawmaker, he said this, It's a fairy tale to believe in some Aladdin's cave where there is hidden the common law in all its splendour, and somehow that on a judge's appointment there descends upon him knowledge of the magic words open sesame. In fact, the reality is that the common law is created and has been created and developed by judges over many centuries in a never-ending process of refinement and cross-generational conversation. Above all, it is not a passive process. It is an active, necessarily an active process. And Parliament has been perfectly content to allow this to happen. Of course, Parliament can and does legislate to change the common law. And the judges are perfectly content with that. But there remain large expanses where Parliament has chosen to go nowhere near or to only intervene in a limited way. And it's in those territories, the law of negligence, the law of private remedies, the law of contract, the law of privacy and confidentiality, indeed the law of judicial review itself, to take just a few examples, where the common law largely still holds dominion. The JPP also tells us that while the courts have had a limited capacity to develop the common law, it is Parliament that has enjoyed the main responsibility for overseeing the content of the law and changing it when required. Again, to my mind, this statement is at odds with the historical reality of judging. The common law is nothing more than the accumulation of judicial learning over many centuries, and it changes with the times. Otherwise, our law would be ossified in the 14th century, except to the extent that Parliament had chosen to intervene. And I want to end with three well-known examples of judicial lawmaking, which I think everyone would applaud. The first takes us back to the 1770s, 1770s, when famously Lord Mansfield declared that slavery was not a concept which was recognised in Britain. And the result of that was the enslaved person, James Somerset, who'd been detained by his so-called master, was ordered to be set free and was given his liberty. Should Mansfield have said it, it's a matter for Parliament? No, I suggest. That was judicial activism at work. I scroll forward 160 years or so to 1932, to the famous case every law student reads about. Donahue and Stevenson, the famous case of the snail and the ginger beer bottle. And it was the same Lord Atkin, who I've spoken about just before, who effectively created the modern law of negligence in his speech in that case. And that speech has literally changed the lives of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people, for the better, since then. Again, 
judicial activism, which should have been left to Parliament, which had shown no interest at all in changing the law of negligence? Again, I think not. And finally, more recently, an, an equally famous example. For centuries, the law of England was understood to hold that a man could not be guilty of the rape of his wife, notwithstanding that she had not given informed consent. And Parliament had shown no interest at all in changing the law to, 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 to make it acceptable. Then a case came before the House of Lords in the early 1990s, uh, and the courts decided on a prosecution of Mr. R, as he was known, that the law should reflect modern times, and they decided that the so-called marital rape exception should no longer apply. And Mr. R was rightly convicted of rape. Again, I ask, was that a piece of objectionable judicial activism? Should the judges have deferred to a passive parliament and allowed Mr. R to go free? I leave that question to you. I mentioned right at the beginning of this lecture Joshua Rosenberg's recent book, Enemies of the People, a book I urge you, I should say, to read. Now, Rosenberg is, of course, one of our most respected judicial commentators, very careful in his opinions, and certainly no apostle of judicial activism. And I, but I suspect that most lawyers, whether they veer to the right or to the left, would agree with Rosenberg's ultimate conclusion in his book, which I want to quote. Far from being enemies of the people, judges are just about the only friends we have. I've gone on slightly too long. I apologise for that. Thank you very much for your patience and your time. <laughs>